Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. Today you're listening to Lessons on Leadership, our weekly conversation with inspiring people sharing some of the stories and lessons from their journey. You know, struggling and, and making it, right? Adversity and then making it. Failure and then making it. Or getting back up and failing again and then getting back up and failing again. You'll eventually make it. So the greatest failure is the failure to try. That's what I learned from it is that if you quit, then okay, you didn't make it, right? You did fail you because you quit. If you never quit, you'll never fail permanently. Our guests today are Tom and Jen Satterley, founders of the All Secure Foundation, an organization that helps combat warriors and their spouses reconnect and rebuild their relationships following their deployments and service. Sergeant Major Tom Satterley spent 25 years in the U.S. Army Special Operations Forces, with many of those serving in the elite Delta Force on deployments from Mogadishu to Iraq. When Tom returned home, he found the emotional scars of battle came with him as he struggled to deal with post-traumatic stress and the impact that had on his personal and professional life. Tom's wife, Jen, was a director of film and photography of special operations training, working with the SEALs, Rangers, and Green Berets to film training exercises. Together, they teamed up to help Tom heal from his trauma and then found it all secure to dedicate themselves to helping other Special Operations Forces veterans upon their return home. Tom is the author of All Secure, and Jen is the author of Arsenal of Hope. You can learn more about their work at allsecurefoundation.org. Now let's go talk with Tom and Jen. Well, good morning. It's great to uh, be together, and I'm excited to spend time with Tom and Jen. We've been talking about this for a few months after... uh, I read his book and listened to a couple of things that they had done and was just really inspired by the work they're doing and some of the lessons from both their journeys that I think fit into a lot of the things we've spent time on multiple times over the past year and a half here together. So looking forward to learning a little bit more about you guys. Tom is the author of All Secure, which uh, really is a big snapshot of his life uh, back from beginning in the army and then qualification uh, for Delta and then uh, some of the battles overseas and then some of the things he's learned since he returned. And then Jen is the author of Arsenal of Hope, which is really unique in uh, a lot of the approach she has taken to trauma and that it's a team-based approach, which I think is really cool. And we want to get into some of that, too, about how folks can work together and help each other uh, be healthier and thrive. And so that's really cool work. So you guys want to go back and uh, tell, I mean, there's like a thousand ways we can go here because there's so much stuff in your story <laughs> that, that we can build on and a lot of great themes. Why don't you give everybody a little overview of your background? I know there's some folks on here. Drew Meyerwich is on here. I'm sure you guys will know some of the same guys from Somalia. And I believe Mike Kenny and you will have run across some of the same folks. And so um, we'll probably have some uh, sidetracks along the way. But uh, why don't you give guys a little overview of uh, what you've done? Wow. How far back, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> uh, birth or something, you know. <laughs> okay. So I was born. And then fast forward to joining the Army. It was one of those... Um, Man, I'm, I wasn't an army guy, right? I, I don't know. I never thought of it growing up. My family wasn't part of it. And I get that a lot. Like, what was your dream? Was it your vision? You know, I, I didn't have any of that. I had um, a friend that joined the army, came home, was bragging about basic and AIT, and he was going to Europe. And I'm thinking, 
I live in Indiana, man. I don't know if I'll ever go anywhere. And that sounded like a good idea at the time. So I joined just for college money. You know, it wasn't uh, at a, going to a John Cougar Mellon camp concert <laughs> in Indiana. Nothing so says America say like that. that. Right. So <laughs> that, that, that had to happen. And uh, I literally went home and told my parents I joined the army that night after a concert and they freaked out because it was never in anybody's um, view at all, no, nor mine. And it was just one of those. Sure, I'll do that thing. And uh, stumbling forward in my life, you know, I'm, I think in college money and I bump into a couple of friends in there and um, one of them's holding a picture, you know, he's carrying a picture of him in Germany of his dad holding him as a baby with his green beret on, you know, wearing his dad's green beret. And I thought, man, that's a dream I want to have. So I, I stole his life dream. You borrowed it. I borrowed it, to, there you, you know, to be a green beret. And, and I just started following that path. You know, I, I was lucky to go to French commando school, German ranger school, um, platoon competence training, which was taught by Rangers and Green Berets. And I thought, man, this is different. This could keep me in, you know, this is interesting. So I chose to pursue my college degree while in, while continuing on with a journey of finding cool things. And I didn't know what that would be. So I joined, uh, you know, the Q course, made that after airborne school, the Q course, you re-enlisted just to get to Fort Bragg. And then while I'm in language school, trying to learn Persian Farsi, some guys came up and said, hey, we think you have what it takes to be, you know, over here. And I'm like, that sounds cool too. What did we do to do that? So I just kind of stumbled and did that too. And, uh, you know, without a plan for the finish line at all, I just kept going. And um, that's when that, that's what took me to Somalia, which was the, the life-changing moment for me, you know, though I didn't know it at the time, what direction that was changing my life for. I thought it was taking me into a, I'll always train harder direction. Like I'll never back down. Somalia will never happen to me again. And so I got my, put my head down and focused on my life. Um, and for, foresaw it, everything else, right. My family, anything in my life was focused at work only. And that's, that's kind of took us to where we are now of, of why do people fail in, in their relationships? It's because when you focus so much in one direction, no matter what job you do, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's Delta Force or, or you're a salesman or anything. If you focus in one direction only, everything back here is going to get left behind, you know? So that's what took us to the foundation. A lot with more in between, I'm sure we'll get to, but, you know, that's kind of me in a nutshell of why I ended up here was wanting to help people like I was helped by Jen. I'll let her tell her story of how she was intermingled into that mess because um, she started out on the other side of life and came over and met in the middle with me. Yeah, I think I was about 35 when I crossed over from a total civilian life and really never thought about military ever, frankly. You know, my my dad served and my brother served. And so it was just something that was part of our family. But Certainly when I got a call to um, show up on a set and start shooting uh, film, not guns, um, I always used to say I shoot with special operations. They're like, oh, what what weapons? I'm like, no, 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 a camera. Like, <laughs> I, I'm a camera girl. So um, I had spent my career in advertising and film and was hired on basically as an action photographer to come along and go on these really large, uh, they're called RMTs, realistic military training exercises. And those would span anywhere from a week to three to four weeks. So 
I might be with a SEAL team for four weeks um, and getting really to intimately know that team. And I think during the three, four years I did this job and was embedding with SEALs, mainly SEALs, um, some Green Berets and Rangers as well, I started to notice that Tom's situation wasn't so unique. Um, the things that he was facing and hiding, kind of everybody in the room was hiding as well. And really my passion turned from being the camera girl uh, to saying, you know what, I've, I've learned too much to turn the other way. I don't think my place is really holding a camera anymore. Um, I wanna help these men and women come home. I wanna help their families um, readjust to countless deployments and countless trauma and stress, whether you call it PTS, whether you call it combat trauma, whether you call it whatever you want. Um, the stigma was there and the suicides were there. Tom had lost a bunch of friends to suicide in the, in that couple first years. And I thought I've been a civilian lived in this life for 35 years. I don't know a single person, um, except for my great aunt who committed suicide in my whole life. And now, you know, year two, I, I know five, six, seven, eight, nine people who have. So really my passion became, how do we help on the home front? And so we started all secure. That yeah. was in 16. It was, it was that mix where you bring that secret military life to the civilian world instantly that that realization happened of, oh, we're sending them off to training, you know, now they're going to war. And now, okay, next year, hey, where's Bob? He didn't make it. Oh, where's Mike? He didn't make it. Where's Jim? He didn't make it. She's like, I can't do this. This is too real. This is not TV. This is not just a number. This is not the news. I talked to these people and six months later, they're already dead and they're not coming back for the next rotation, but you guys are going back overseas again. And then the next one, hey, where'd Mike go? He didn't make this last one. Or, or a vehicle rolls on training because training's dangerous. People don't understand yeah, how that dangerous- That was shocking for me. Uh, right? She's <laughs> like, what happened? Why aren't we training today? Well, they, they rolled a vehicle and the SEAL's dead. We got to go home. And like, she's like, what? On training? Yeah, people died. It was my first training. Very first time I ever showed up. That was the awakening. Yeah. And that was my realization that the civilian world maybe doesn't know what we do either. So that understanding just isn't there. It's the it's the Hollywood, right? Oh, they're uh, they're good. And then they come out and they're the bad guys, you know. When they get out of service, they become the bad guys. Yeah. We argued that one for a while. I, I, she's like, you know, you're the bad guys to the civilians. I go, we're the heroes, man. We, we save up the be. world, you know. And she's like, let's watch some movies. And she starts showing me all these movies like, oh, your former heroes turn bad guys now. Like, I get it. I get it. So there was a lot of awakening to be done when we met about two different people from two very different worlds. Yeah. How do we bring those worlds together and help each other? So that's what started our foundation. That is awesome. You know, one of the things in the book that I thought was kind of precursor to the work you're doing now it was going way back to qualification. And you said the instructors taught what was necessary for every candidate, gave them every opportunity to succeed. But I quickly realized the only person who cared if I made it was myself. Unit didn't care. Candidate either had what it took or didn't. No one was going to offer encouragement, cheer me on, but they wouldn't discourage me. I had to do it on my own or not at all. Yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, Mike, Tony, Drew, you know, different ones of us have a conversation about grit and perseverance and taking responsibility and accountability for uh, 
your own well-being and your own uh, ability to to push through. How much does that play? In? What did you learn from those early lessons of grit, and how do you apply that to teaching younger people today? Yeah, I think I did that lesson yesterday with somebody on the phone um, who had come to retreat with her wife, was doing well, um, but I knew that they were the kind of person that kept falling back on poor me. Right. Uh, for me, I'm a victim. You know, what about my 10% veteran discount? You know, it's like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to be those guys. Okay. I don't want that veteran under the bridge image. I want that leadership image because that's what we can be. We can all, you know, crumble and, and have downtimes, but that self-awareness of, I spent years blaming everybody else for why I was so miserable. You know, I, I volunteered for everything I did. Right. I volunteered for the army. I volunteered to go to jump school. I volunteered to go above that, above that, and above that. And I kept going. And then to turn around and complain about why someone's not taking care of me after everything they put me through, I, you know, I'm never going to win that argument with myself. So the, so the self-awareness of I'm the common denominator in, in three divorces. I'm the common denominator that I'm the only guy that's there when things go really, really wrong, right? So I'm the guy to blame. And once I figured out that I'm the guy to blame, I could get to work on fixing what I needed to fix versus figuring out whatever else needed to do to make this all better. I, I could get to work on myself. And I learned that, you know, in, in all the selections that I went through, um, even German Ranger School was, I was the only English speaking guy in the whole course. So you hear this, blah, 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 and everybody takes off and, and, and starts doing stuff. And I'm like, what, you know? <laughs> and the instructor's like, 30 minutes, hide, no find. I'm like, huh? So, okay. So I go hide and six hours later, like blowing air horns, trying to find me. And I'm like, <laughs> I fell asleep under the brush pile. Sorry, but you know, struggling and, and making it right. Adversity and then making it failure and then making it or getting back up and failing again and then getting back up and failing again, you'll eventually make it. So the greatest failure is the failure to try. That's what I learned from it is that if you quit, then okay, you didn't make it, right? You did fail you because you quit. If you never quit, you'll never fail permanently, right? And I learned that, that, and I think that's what selections are for, to see they want to know who can go the farthest. But I think as the candidate, I learned that, wow, I can do these things. I can have a horrible, horrible month of my life, and then that will get me somewhere else. And I made it. I lived through it instead of curling up at a ball and, crying and waiting for someone else to come save me. You know, I learned that and I bring that to helping people with a lot of love. I lead with love, right? Not fear now. It's used to scream and yell and get things done. Now it's like, hey, you know, let me help you get that path, you know? And so leading with love and the self-awareness of looking at people saying, hey, let's be honest. Why are you having troubles right now? It's pretty much going to start internally because you're the only one that can do the work and it's going to suck. It's going to be hard, but you'll make it. And so that's kind of how we help people get past that. You know, they call crying. Typically they're drunk. It's typically in the afternoon or Christmas or something and it's, and they're drunk and now they want help. So I listen to them for 30 minutes crying. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I miss it. I miss it, Tom. I miss it so much. What do you miss? Right. What do you miss? They don't know. I said, do you miss the shitty pay? Do you miss the bad hours? The fact that you might get killed today? And if not, you got the chance to get killed tomorrow. 
You know, do you miss the horrible weather conditions you have to work in? No, they miss the tribe. They miss working in a community of like-minded individuals with a one oriented goal in mind and they head in the same direction. That's what they miss, teamwork. I said, you can find that now if you look for it. And that's not looking in the rearview mirror of that car you're driving down the interstate going 200 miles an hour, looking at what I did. Look at all that stuff I did. I meet people, hey, how you doing? What do you do for a living? I'm a retired Green Beret. I look at Jen, I start laughing. I go, is that what you do forever? You're a retired Green Beret forever, right? That's just it. They peak, right? So I tell people, don't peak in high school. Don't peak with that last high school touchdown pass you through and live that, you know, that Al Bundy day of, you know, you're going to crash your car living in the rearview mirror, right? Look out the windshield, look to the future, prepare for that future, and you'll get there. And then your life will be a lot better. And you'll have a goal. You'll find your tribe. Be the leader of it. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But that whole poor me thing only lasts as long as you allow it to last, really. That's funny. I had that same conversation with someone yesterday that was uh, talking about an earlier football play. And I was like, do you really want the peak of your life to have been at 20 and then everything else after that's downhill? Right. <laughs> why, why not have a slow ascent? Why not have more big events in your life ahead of you besides that one? And it's, it's, uh, it's hard, but what it ties into something I think in your experiences and some of what you were just talking about is discomfort, forcing yourself into discomfort, which, you know, we've talked about a number of times, and there's a lot more writing on that, but you really have to take the effort to put yourself into uncomfortable situations to grow, including some of the things that I know you're teaching on healing. Those things are going to be uncomfortable and awkward and weird and different, not me. And so how do you, uh, how have you found to tie in those experience of discomfort into helping people? You know, it's, it's, in, it's in the explanation and the awareness of the people that say, I can't do it. I don't know what to do. The civilian world's scary. What do I do? I'm like, oh, you've never been trained before. Have you? you don't know what you're doing out here in the civilian world. In an unknown environment, in, in a place you're not used to being in, and now you're scared all of a sudden. I go, bring it back to, say, I don't know, your first day in Syria. Bring it back to your first day stepping across the border in Iraq or flying in after an 18-hour flight into Afghanistan and jumping off into somebody's front yard or entering into the bedroom at night when he's still asleep. I go, is that not scary? Was that not adversity? Is that unknown area that you went into? And why did you go do that? Well, I had all this training. I had all the, you know, all the training that I had. I go, yeah. Every job you do, you'll get training. You'll learn how to do it. You know, you don't know how to plan. We all know how to do a pace plan, right? Primary alternate, contingency, emergency. One of those will fail, you'll go to the next one. When that fails, you go to the next one. That one, you go to the emergency. And when those fail, because they always fail, you'll go to your SOPs, which you've practiced over and over and over again. You'll fall back on those standard operating procedures that you use daily and you'll still succeed. So like, no matter what that fear is that's in front of you, whether it be seeing a counselor or picking up that 10,000 pound phone to call somebody and say, hey, you know what? I need some help. I just bring in the realization. I try to use humor because what we do is not as humorous. So it's it's hard to sell our product of help when people aren't very humorous about it or even want to enter into that world of, oh, I need help, huh? You know, I bring in jokes of like, well, think about Alcoholics Anonymous. It's okay and accepted to be drunk in a bar and acting a fool and, you know, and standing up on the bar and dancing publicly and doing that stuff. You did all that publicly. 
But when you had to ask for help, you went anonymous and got private. Why is that? We should applaud people that go get help for something versus withdrawing and making anonymous. So we've created this world to where if you need help, it's bad. And you have to hide that. So go get it in private and then come back and show the new face, right? The new digital world, the Facebook world of you snap a photo like this on Facebook. And I was like, <laughs> and it's 30 seconds later, we're arguing about something or how we took the photo. We're trying to take the photo. Like, hey, girl, smile, fix your hair. And, I, and then you smile. It's not the real world, right? But that's the real world people see. That's like um, watching TV every day where they give you that indoctrination of what their real world is. And that's people believe that the real world is hard. The real world is making decisions. It's going to suck at times. It'll be great at times. And it's a roller coaster. And when you accept that and accept where you are on that roller coaster as it's still the same ride and I'll still get to the finish, then you can accept when you're in the low spots. You can enjoy the high spots more. Um, right? Yeah, I think going first is also a big thing. Yeah. In this community is, in any community really, is just having somebody that you respect that has gone before you and done the thing that maybe you're afraid to do. And so we always encourage people, if you found a program that works, if you found a therapist that works, if you found whatever it may be, whatever that modality of healing is that works for you, one of the most powerful things you could do is share that with somebody else. And we've seen that countless times. We just had a, a young man that we helped who had a really tough time after Afghanistan found a counselor in, in Fort Bragg that he really liked. And we encouraged him. We said, have you shared that phone number with anyone else, that therapist that's worked for you? And he said, no. But the next time he came back, he said, you know what? I got a couple extra cards from my therapist. And I was sitting at a bar. I was with one of the toughest guys on my team having a drink. And I said, hey, you know what happened on our last rotation has really bothered me. And I started seeing this guy. He's really been helpful. He said his friend, who was like the toughest guy of the group, just started crying, couldn't hold it back because he was in so much pain, was hiding it, was shoving it under the rug as best as he thought he could. And all it took is one of his teammates to say, that really bothered me too. Here's help. Here's that hand reaching out saying, not only is it bothering me, but here's an answer, one answer. There, there's dozens. But when you share your story and you go first, that's incredibly powerful for other people especially in this community. It's, it's, it's straight up leadership. I'll ask people, who are the leaders in the room? What, 500 people in a room, two or three hands go up when they look around like, am I going to get in trouble? You know, and then <laughs> I'm the leader. I guess. And I'm like, every hand should go up, right? Every hand in that room should go up because everybody has the opportunity to be the leader and show anybody what's legally, morally, and ethically right and to help people. And you can help them with the path that you've been on. So everyone has the ability to be a leader and be on the dance floor first it's scary, right? It's an empty floor, guys and girls on one side, you know, and they're all opposites and the music's playing, but no one's dancing because nobody wants to be first and be embarrassed, right? So her and I jumped out there and started, I don't know, two-stepping, who knows, but <laughs> people stepping all over each always show, come out first. <laughs> and join you, right? And everyone has the ability to be first and help others. That's all you have to do is to be first sometimes and show by doing, you know, follow me, that leadership. And, uh, Lord knows how many people you could save that way because they'll you'll never know. They'll never tell you. But you might hear about it later in a message like like we get all the time. Hey, I read your book a year ago and I didn't know how to reach out. And you saved my life. You made me make a different decision. You know, you get that. I saved your life. I, I've never saved anybody's lives. People have made their own decisions along the way because right. 
if I if I don't want to take credit for someone committing suicide, which I won't, and I tell everyone else it's never anyone else's fault except the individual that did that act, and not to put that on yourself. And if I want to truly not take that on, then I have to truly take on the fact that I didn't save anybody either. They did that as well. They have to do the work. They have to put in the effort. And when they stumble, they got to get back up. And you're there to show them the way. And we're a lighthouse. And here's some tools along the way. But we can't do the work for anybody. You know, Jen, you hit on a story there a minute ago. And there was actually a story in your book where you asked people, if someone was bleeding out on the battlefield, would you help them? And everybody says yes. And it's okay. If somebody's crashing in a bar and self-destructing, would you help them? And nobody does because we're afraid we might offend someone who might hurt their feelings. And you talked about how important it was a minute ago to jump in there and, and help. How do you, how do you help people address that fear that, well, someone might not like me. If I, if I, if I jump in and intervene, they might get mad. They might not like me. They might not be my friend anymore. Yeah, that it's seems so fear. silly, but, but that no, holds it's, us back. It's, it's a real fear and it's biologically based because one of the things i I feel has been very powerful for me is the last few years getting really deep into research and trying to understand the biology of the decisions that we make sometimes. And I think one of the most powerful things that I've learned in recent time is um, there's a book called Tribe and it's by Sebastian Junger. And he did the um, he did the documentary Corangal and Restrepo. So he spent a lot of time embedding troops and he talks about how important that peer relationship is, not just in the military, but in any facet of community, that truly we have our caveman brains and we were built to have peer support because back in the day, you know, during caveman times, if your tribe, if your group didn't like you and they exercised you from the group, you're gone, you're exiled, you're dead, you, you didn't survive. So we, as humans, are built to have that, do you like me? Am I okay? Am I part of this group and tribe? It's a survival mechanism that we still have. So I get it. I'm afraid of judgment for my peers. I'm afraid to do or say some things at times that might seem against the grain or the flow, or I might be judged for it. Somebody, certainly a close friend might not like me for it, or um, it's a hard thing to do. That's tough. And I'm not going to minimize that for anyone, especially on something that's as heavy as, hey, I'm, I'm worried about you because the way you're drinking is dangerous. That's a tough conversation to have sometimes with somebody very close in your life. You know, I will give an example, yeah, though, of, tell that story of... of not doing that. Yeah. So we uh, we were speaking to a, a young Green Beret group. I don't know, maybe 500 people in the room. Next, we go and speak to the, the their cadre. And, and so they're maybe late 20s, early 30s. Some guy comes up after and he said, um, yeah, you know, that story you were talking about, the Delta Force guy who, who killed himself, that was a good friend of mine, actually. And I said, oh, so you were, you were friends with Greg? He said, yeah. He said, you know, it was really weird because we were all at these parties. We all knew he was drinking too much, but we all drink too much is what we do. So that wasn't really a warning sign, but he was at a party and he kept take, kept taking his weapon and doing this with it. And we got in the car and his wife said, are you going to call his command? Are you going to tell somebody? 
And he said, why, why would I, I'm not, he's a Delta force guy. Like I'm, he was embarrassed. I'm not going to call his command. I'm not going to tell somebody I, he's fine. And because of that fear of judgment, not that he's responsible for Greg's death, but all of those guys that were there at that party for this man who committed suicide just days later, they all were carrying that weight of, I should have said something. I should have called somebody. I thought he was okay. I didn't want to say anything. I was embarrassed to say something. So sometimes, and I'm not saying the gravity and the weight is life or death every single time, but you could see where that fear comes into play. Now, here's the thing that was really sad. In that same conversation, he said, I've got another friend that's headed down the path of Greg, which honestly, in, in special operations, there's many people headed down that path of Greg. Like most of them. And he said, you know, he's got a drinking problem, just like Greg did, and, and it's pretty severe. I don't want to say anything to him because he's the fun drunk, meaning when we all go out, he's the one that's the funny one. He's the boy. So, but when this guy gets sober, he doesn't go out anymore. He doesn't hang out and he becomes really dull. So none of us are really saying anything to him. Wow. You just shared a story two minutes ago about the gravity of the weight that you feel that you didn't say anything about Greg. And in the same turn, you're not going to say something to help this man. So I think it's critical. I, I understand there's judgment. I understand that fear of it. And I'm not saying everything is life or death, but I would say Sometimes you got to swallow that pill and say, you know what, if this, I know this friend needs help. I know this friend is drinking too much or gambling too much, or maybe is being reckless by flirting with women at the bar. I know he's married with children. I'm not going to say anything. He's fine or she's fine. Um, it's okay to have a friend mad at you for a while. It's okay to have that friend not talk to you for a while. It's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to say my piece because I, I love you because I'm concerned about you, because I care about you. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be saying anything. So out of the love and concern and care, this is what I'm seeing, not judging. Is there anything I can do to help support you? Is there anything you need to talk about or get off your chest? I think that's a critical conversation. And if that friend's mad at you for a while, then at least you know, at least hey, he's I, alive. I said my piece. Um, I care about this person. I'll follow back up with them in a few weeks. If you got questions, let me know. We'll get you unmuted. Let's go over to Travis. Oh, I just really resonated with what you said a little bit <clears throat> earlier about, and you and Randy both about the ascent upwards, living in the past, um, military, law enforcement alike, like to define themselves by their accomplishments. Um, that's pretty standard in our industry promotions, achievements, letters of recognition, awards, and such. And um, it just, it goes without saying that in life, um, the longer we, we stay stuck sometimes in those, if we're in a place in life, particularly guys coming or gals coming out of the military, that's the only thing that they know how to, how to reflect on is, is those accomplishments, because that gives them an inner peace or it gives them strength or it gives them um, a way to boost their self-esteem when it's failing uh, terribly. Um, and so I went kind of through this in this last year, um, similar obviously in law enforcement, in the military with some of the same experiences. Um, and I noted in my, my long-winded message there that I'm, I'll wear this uniform and badge and gun for the last time on Tuesday of next week uh, after almost 27 years. So 
um, and I'm going into a completely new field. Um, that's something I never thought I'd do. Um, you know, started the academy when I was 22 years old, and you told me I was going to be in the industry that I'm going to be in starting on November 8th. I would have laughed at you in the face, but it didn't come without hard work. It didn't come without without failing over and over again and talking to people and, and learning what life is like outside of, of this public service industry that we're in. So, um, but it's all been worth it. Um, and you have to know that those, those difficult times and those hard times are only part of your learning process and growth process. So anyway, just, just thanks for kind of reaffirming some of those thoughts that have gone on in my head um, as being a service person um, all these years. So thank you. Thank you for your service. Yeah, That's thank amazing. you. And congratulations oh, you. on your upcoming retirement. Are you ready for it? I, I am. Absolutely. So absolutely. So keep our card, would you? I'm sorry. Would you keep our number? Absolutely. I, I, absolutely. I hear I hear we're ready for this a lot and it's going to be a big, big change for you. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, 20 some odd years and then boom, another industry. Mm -hmm leaving comfort going into mm -hmm. the unknown i mean it's exhilarating mm -hmm. it's terrifying and then we're finding out you know what about a year to two mm -hmm. typically with nothing to do hopefully you know what you have is your passion you like it you're going to go into it and it, it'll it'll keep you going but be prepared for that change it's not the yeah. same it's it's different it, mm -hmm. and then the frustrations will start to flow Mm -hmm. And we and we watch the process grow over a year's time of people calling back. You're right. I hate civilians. I want to kill them. It's, it's like well, you're a civilian now. Don't kill civilians. You know. Um. But yeah, that transition is tough when you leave something comfortable. Mm -hmm. Comfortable is you know a crappy job that you know, right? Or a hard job that you know is still comfortable. It's familiarity. So when I say comfort, I don't mean easy. You know, because. <laughs> We know law enforcement's not easy. Nobody likes law enforcement officers until they need one, especially when they don't want one because they're doing something wrong, you know, and then there's no mm -hmm. appreciation. And then the, oh, we know where we're at right now. It makes me sick, but it's a hard life. And we, we, we help first responders a lot. And a lot of them start with, my career is not like yours, but and I'm like, here we go. The comparison is a thief, you know? Nobody mm -hmm. cares about, what you did to feel this way and I, okay i don't care about what people did to make them feel this way i care about how people feel right because mm -hmm. that's the ultimate thing that we want to help not what got you here because thousands of different things take us to places that make us feel bad and yeah. feel down and lonely and not good enough and i'll never be good enough or how did i get here i mean i had those thoughts every day at work you know i'm never good enough to be here i don't know even know how i'm here swipe my card every day and it turned green I'm like, oh, thank God I'm at work still, you know, and the same thing in your jobs now, right? For first responders, it's like, what am I going to do wrong today that someone's not going to like? I mean, that's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. So getting out will be a lot of, well, you'll even miss that pressure that you don't think you'll miss, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that thing that you don't think you'll miss, you'll miss and it'll hit yeah. you. So that's okay to miss. It's it. okay. It's and it's right. okay to not to be okay and to feel bad, but you know what? It's not okay to sit in that forever. Yeah, for sure. So. But congratulations. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. And I hope your your next uh, career, if it's a career and not a hobby or whatever it is, is uh, uh, it's a career. So, good yeah. deal. Amazing. And, you know, they say, oh, you're retiring. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm retiring. Uh, 
<laughs> no, you're. I'm I, not I used old to enough to retire. Him. I need to make more money still. So I used to say I'm retired. I'm like, no, you're retired from the army. Get to work. Right. Sorry, Very, major. Good point. Go. Good point. Good point. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. you know, you hit on it, and I want to go over to Mike Kenny and uh, get his observations too. But so many people tie their identity to their job, and then when they retire or walk away from that, Mike, won't you? talk about your question here sure you know hey tom and jen thanks so much appreciate you everything you're saying really resonates with me so i'm a former special forces guy myself retired lieutenant colonel's first group guy was actually in group with uh you know some of your some of your pizos you know on your side side of the fence um i'll talk to you offline about that good guys um yeah empowerment and ownership i mean in in large measure what you're talking about really is a, and, and by the way, I have a nonprofit where it's sent that helps veterans and first responders with PTS. And we like to say that we empower our participants to take ownership of their lives and healing. And that's so important. Number one, there's some people feel that they don't have agency over their lives. They've lost control. And we want to reassert for them that they do, in fact, have more control over their lives than they think, much as you were saying. But that control means a the good and the bad, you know, so you. Yeah. Hence, you need to take ownership as well. So we also like to say, hey, bad things happen to good people. We get that. You know, so no one's going to say, hey, suck it up or, you know, hey, get over it. It's not that bad. It's like, no, you lose somebody or something happens to you. Got it. You know, you, you grieve it. You get that validation that, yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling good about this. But the next thing called the stoic philosophy, control the controllable, what have you. The next question is, what are you going to do about it? You know, what can you control? You can't control what people do to you. You can't always control your circumstances, but you can take concerted action. So that's super critical. And then Jen was talking about drive. So absolutely. I think so much of uh, what ails people, you know, whether they, you know, retire after 20 plus years, like yourself, like myself, or even people that are, I'll say, institutionalized in that they've been in long enough to where it becomes the core of who they are. When they lose that identity, whether it's military, law enforcement, fire department, that's so important, you know, and then sometimes it's your, your, your tribe or your profession is approximately equal to your identity. If you're not careful, when you leave that, you know, your, your, your ego is really at risk. So those are some other things that I know we've seen on our end. And I think that you're addressing on all levels. So I'll stop there and say, you know, I commend your efforts, great stuff. And everything you're saying really resonates with me. And bottom line is I definitely like to get with you offline. Absolutely. Thank I was going to say, Mike, you look very familiar to me and I, my memory's going. So it's sad <laughs> to bring things up like that, but I was looking at you earlier and I'm like, I know, I know, I know you from somewhere, but for sure. One. We talk about ego a lot and how it's killing people. I think Jen talked to Sebastian Junger on the phone about ego. She asked him, what do you think the number one problem in the military is that he would, that he understood. Yeah. He said, it's ego. You know, it's the, you come home, the parades, the heroes. And when you, what was it when you come home and it's like, well, the first question he asked me was, how do you feel about thank you for your service? Yeah. And I'm like, great. I don't know. <laughs> He's like, nope, it's deadly. So it, it puts you on, it puts you on a stage, right? Thank you for what you did. Okay. If we don't thank everyone, then we're not all equal. So therefore we're better. And that's, you know, the subconscious things that happen to us that we don't understand, like friends of ours freaking out about not getting 10% off at a meal. I'm like, 
Uh, you know, or or I hear a lot, you know, the, the civilians don't even know we're at war anymore. So screw them. They don't even care. And I'm thinking, well, good, you're doing your job right. Because you're the guy that raised your hand to go do that, not them, right? Do you get up at 6 a.m. and thank the garbage guy when he hauls your trash off? Because if he didn't, horrible things would happen to all of us as well. So when we want thanked or this or that, then we're saying, look at me. And that's a problem, in my opinion. Yeah, and that, that's across the board. That you think you deserve something versus you think you can contribute something, right? I mean, what, Kennedy, how many times we've said this back in the day, you know? So I, I want the mindset of people like, what can I do? We're service people. We help others. We never help ourselves, right? So our job is to tell other people, put your auction mask on first because you can't help other people when you're in a place of needing help yourself or the help you give will be skewed. You know, we kind of top that with, would you take advice from people you wouldn't trade places with? You know, just any kind of thing to shake that awareness of, oh, that person I'm following isn't the right person. You become like the 10 people you hang around the most, you know? So who are you hanging around? You know, are they sales or anchors? You know, you need both in life, but what do you need now? And who are you hanging around? And do you need sales? Go hang around those people that bring you off and whisk you around the world, you know, versus holding you back and, and help me. And, oh, you know, misery loves company. So they'll become the anchors and you'll be there to help them. And sometimes you got to cut away. And yeah, and, and I would say for the identity and ego piece, that's for every single human being, yeah. not just reserved. I think we think of law enforcement, first responders and military as losing their identity with career changes. But when I went from the art world, the advertising world, the film world, which was very, 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 very different than the special operations, I mean, the pendulum went from one side to the other. I lost friends that didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't know. I'm like, okay, so I've got divorced. I've left a job I've done since I was 22 years old. I'm 35. I'm in with these guys who are completely different than any other human I've worked with or been alongside the last 15 years. I had a major identity crisis. I'm like, I don't even know. Are these clothes I'm wearing because I'm a photographer or because I like them? Is this music because all my peers liked it or because I like it? I had to unravel a lot of who I was because my identity was a tied so closely to what I did. I saw a good question. I think it was Drew about identity or purpose. Now, when we say it in a conversation, maybe we don't even consider what we're saying, but that's what we like to do is the why. I tell people, you know, if you don't know the why you're wrong. Why are you doing something? Why are you saying something? So yeah, identity or purpose. What do you think that? I think the identity is what individually people address it as. For I lost sure. my identity. I miss it, Tom. What do you miss wearing the uniform and being part of somebody bigger, cooler? And 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 you know, or is that your purpose? You know, because you can still have purpose. You, you can, can redefine always have your purpose, purpose and constantly. redefine your purpose, yeah. which I think redefines your identity at an individual level, right? But you can always do it. You always can go find the tools if you don't have them to do what you want to do. Most of us have already been given the tools. We just have shifted directions and don't know how to. Yeah, there's an amazing little tool called Google. You can find anything <laughs> you want there. You know, you really can empower yourself to learn now. I mean, there's no excuse really anymore for I don't know what to do or I don't know where to go. I tell my 14 year old, I'm like, you know, this thing, it does more than, you and know, TikTok. Your hand, TikTok. You know, you you can you've got all the information of the world at your hands. And, and honestly, that's how we got started is I started Googling people like, how did you start this journey of healing? How do you heal from this? You know, article, article, 
experts, psychologists, doctors, who other special operations guys who had gone before us and said, this technique works or this treatment works. Okay, let's go try that. Let's go do this. And it all came from Google. So everyone has the power to learn whatever they want to learn, period, including healing. And apply that path to everything you do, right? Apply planning to everything. Um, a lot of what we do is relationship-based. Um, 97% of our of the people we help, or 97% of the suicides committed are after a family issue and alcohol or, or drugs involved, right? So if we can take out, out that family issue and take out the alcohol or drugs, right? We've lowered that greatly because we're making better decisions, number one. And we're not in a bad space doing it while we're fighting, while drinking, you know? sucking down depressants and then getting an argument with your spouse that doesn't sound like a, a good dance floor to be on at all right but we put ourselves there on purpose and then misery we want to argue company. yeah misery loves company and then man we wonder why we argue and fight and every day we're on the phone with our friends talking about hey he's leaving me again today you know has he said that before once a week well, you know <laughs> and misery is also muscle memory yeah. And we fall back on those things that we have to change the pattern of life. And I, a lot of the words and in, in, in spouses we talk to, we talk about changing muscle memory because they don't want to hear counseling. I don't want therapy. Okay. Let's do retraining. We're going to retrain your muscle memory because your muscle memory is to get aggressive and dominate and get on top of that thing. Oh, everything's all right. Oh, okay. sorry. Cool. I just had to, because I need to get secure. Because if not, other times I've, I've been shot at, killed, stabbed, whatever. So every person gets treated the same. Dominate, get a hold, and I'm in charge. Oh, okay, everything's cool. Good guys are in charge. So, all right, sorry, everybody go on, but those people can't handle that. And they don't like the way that you handle those things, no, right? So not at all. you have <laughs> to learn how well. to redo that and make the rules on, not if, but when we fight, what are the rules for fighting? You rules know, of engagement. I don't say that you look like your mother. You don't say that Delta Force sucks or whatever those things that get at our hearts while we're angry and make me want to reach out and choke her instantly. That's instigation of more fight just to win. And we tell everyone if she's trying to win an argument and I'm trying to win the argument, the relationship is losing. And we're both wanting to help the relationship always, but yet we're arguing from different positions to be right. The relationship's losing. So that reality of let's make rules about how we fight, not when, but how, and if we and and how we break apart and understanding each other of oh you're a I'm a you're a withdrawer and I'm a pursuer that won't work in an argument right you have to understand each other get to know each other make rules you're gonna fail at it you're gonna she's first time we started she's like remember those rules we worked on I'm like screw those rules you know ah, they don't work. Of course, you know, I'm not going to want to follow those rules when I'm mad until I make the habit of doing it over and over again. And now my new muscle memory and what is it? 10,000 repetitions before you're, you know, I can I can shoot you between the eyes while looking over here, thinking of something else, because this is what I do for a living. Now I can think of something else and get more done. You know, I don't want to do that now. I want to I want to break that muscle memory of arguing and dominating and listen more. What is your perspective? Oh, and that's going to be a tough, long road. So a you're going to fail for years. <laughs> I still fail. I probably failed yesterday in an argument doing it. Not. Now I, I pull back quicker. We recover quicker. We don't hold on to it as long. We're getting better versus 
I'm mad for two days. I went, I'm going to move out. You know, I'm never going to be good enough. And all the stuff I put in my own head of, I'm not good enough. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm not worth it. And boom, I almost killed myself, you know, years ago, um, telling myself I wasn't worthy of being here and I was in the way. Let's go to uh, John. Uh, yes. And uh, this is my first time in the group. And this conversation is, is, is awesome. Um, the thing that I, I noticed when you, you talked about uh, being the common denominator, I think a lot of times as leaders, uh, I, I was in the military, I was in the US Army, and I just remember my drill sergeants, they had always, they would always point at you with an open fist because um, everything Nice yeah, because if you if you're pointing, then you got you got things pointing back at you. Um, but I think the uh, one of the tech takeaways that I think as leaders that we we have to examine a lot of times. One, there's always this need to be right as a leader. You know, you have to be right. Uh, everybody looks to you. Uh, you can't show weakness, you can't be wrong. Um, so I think one of the things that we don't take a lot of time on, especially in the leadership, is self-leadership. Looking at ourselves, how did we contribute to the problem? Um, are we the common denominator, like you said <laughs> earlier? You know, um, if all of these things are happening why, under my leadership, Am I the common denominator? Because it's very easy to point, point at everything else. We have a tendency. So it's just something that, uh, you know, when I talk to new leaders or, or, or mentor some of my own, my own staff, I'm like, let's make sure your own house is clean before you start pointing at everything else. Because, and, and that's, that's the self-leadership that uh, I think all of us, as some sometimes need to really reflect on and being self-aware in a rotating cycle because we'll forget as humans we'll, we'll go right back to it you know i might do it right one time and the next time you know and you said right as leaders and i i was i literally pondering this this morning and talking to jen about it about leading the nation and political parties and you know you get elected by a political party i get it you gotta appease your party to get there to do something or you would never get there but when you get there, you're leading everyone, right? Not just your side of the party. And I was like, well, always act, acting like you're right. I get it as leaders, we have to be project capable. Sense of it. Yeah. We have to project capability, not being right. I might be wrong, but I'm capable of fixing it and doing it right the next time. And I know that it was wrong and I made a mistake versus I was wrong. And I'm like, no, that's the way it's done. And I wasn't wrong. And then now I'm looking at the, someone going, wow, we're always going to be here. You know, that's a fearful thing. And, and leaders that won't learn from that. It's it's a scary thing, especially ones that you can't remove or, or you don't know how to remove. Cause big issues. Right. And you're worried about capability versus being right. Leaders should admit that they're wrong. Or they don't and know. definitely have a plan on how to make it right better. Or I don't know is OK. I don't know is a great answer. I don't know. Guess what? I'll go find out because I'm, I'm in charge, but I don't know right now. And, and half the time you can point around and go, does anybody know? You know, does anyone know? Then? You know, sitting around a room in a, in a military briefing full of acronyms. 
Nobody's saying a word. And Jen would lean over and go, what is that? What is that? I don't know. Shh. You know, I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. She would go out and Google all the acronyms as a civilian to learn it. So she would know what was going on. She was the only one in the room that knew what was going on. Generals, our majors, nobody knew the acronyms. A whole page of acronyms that said nothing to anybody but her because everyone just sat there like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to act like I don't know what those acronyms are, you know, um, but I'll nod my head like, yeah, that's a good idea. And so that goes and happens, whatever it is. And she's like, you know what y'all just voted on? Because <laughs> I do. So acting right versus being capable is a definite difference that people need to pay attention to. Let's go over here to Jeff. Hey, folks. Hey, Jeff. I am a licensed professional counselor, and I'm just absolutely loving you guys' attitude. You hit on everything that I believe and what I work Thank with. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you're right on you're spot on so i am so supportive of what you're the messages that you're sending and how people can take care of themselves and and do all that kind of stuff i got a personal um you guys are over there what was like the scariest part that you filming that you had to do because you weren't used to any of that right you were <laughs> the billion lady that's going over and getting into this what was that like for you? Exhilarating and terrifying. I mean, for me, one of the funniest things is I'm I'm really afraid of flying. I fly all the time. It doesn't stop me from flying, but I'm the one on the plane like, God, please. There's a big bump and I'm like, it's fine. Yeah. I'm it's, good. it's an awesome trip for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the first time I have a camera and there's a Chinook and he's shoving me in the back to get on it with at, a bunch of seals. At and night. Pitch pitch black i can't see two feet in front of me i have night vision so that's the only way i can see where i'm going and he's going get in there get in there get in there and i'm thinking all right here we go by the way one of the first exercises i was on a seal died like you know and then marines died like a month later in a helicopter crash so all of these wow. things about all these people that were killed in training yes. were always in my head i had two small kids at home at the time so there was a lot of all right, let's do this. Let's hide the fear. Let's shove it down. Act like the cool girl. I remember one time I got, we were on, a, on an exercise. I got a gun butt to my head because the guy didn't see me. Just kind of did a turn. I rolled down a hill, broke my foot, broke my toe. And just got back up because I'm like, listen, these guys go through way worse. <laughs> They've been through way worse. Who am I to be like, my toe hurts. You know, and you just hit me in the face. I have a black eye. But honestly, I, I'd go back to my kid's school with a black eye or cuts. I was burnt, you know, all these things. And the moms are like, what are you doing and why? And I'm like, I don't know. It's scary and terrifying and awesome because, you know, like they're doing a safety brief on it to get on my first Blackhawk and they're strapping me in and giving me all these rules after I've heard about, you know, obviously the horror stories with Blackhawks and Tom says, when the guy's done, I said, did you hear that? Like, I have to push this button the same time as this one to release something, but I'm nervous. And I'm afraid I won't hit both buttons. And he looked at me and he goes, we're flying over international waters. If this thing goes down, we're dead. So just don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, you were supposed to say, I got you, babe. Here, I'll push the buttons. Not like, oh, this is a heavy aircraft. We're going to tip and well, burn and die. So. It was intense. I was being but honest. I, loved it. <laughs> I was being honest. I didn't want to spend a lot of time on how to unbuckle her. But 
It, you know, I would place her in the dark in warehouses in downtown Miami or an old hotel and put her behind a concrete pillar, set her camera up on a door, knowing that they were going to put a charge on that door, blow a hole in the concrete wall. And I'd, I'd tell her, don't move an inch. I'll call you on the radio or I'll text you to hit record. But don't you move from this spot. And it would be hours. And she'd have to go to the bathroom. And she's like, I don't want to move because you never know when they're going to hit. And I don't want her to miss it. And I don't want her to be walking around and get hit with all that concrete blowing in. Because I knew from experience she would be safe in that one spot. And I would get the best shot needed to send in the video, right, and look good. So I would do things to her like that. And then <laughs> the lights would be on. She's like, all right. And then poof, they'd go out. She's like, I can't see anything. She's like, I can't see anything. I go, you got, you know, night vision on your camera. Just when I say turn it on, it'll be on. And you'll see everything, you know. So she did some pretty scary things um, and kept going. So yeah. Well, so you used her inability to say no against her. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I learned that in the military. As a counselor, you'll know I failed that um, the uh, the people pleaser part of me. My right. therapist one time when you do that, she's like, "You're like a ninety-seven percent." I said, "Is that good?" Like I'm almost at hundred. She's like. No, you should be at like 30 or 40. You need to really work on being a people pleaser. So yes, Sergeant Major knew my weaknesses and used them to his advantage. <laughs> I can I'm stick the, her anywhere. Yep. I'm the poster child for therapy. When I started this journey seven years ago, eight years ago, I was a miserable person. Five years ago, I met you eight. Uh, well, <laughs> you started about eight years, years ago, ago. I was still a miserable person. Um, five years ago, I was still pretty much a miserable person trying to be better um three different therapists that didn't work you know a lot of my friends i went to a therapist once and so it didn't work i'm like okay you know i went to three and then found a fourth one that was a licensed clinical social worker that had never worked with military you know i, I was of the mindset that you know i'm not talking to anybody because they don't understand what i've been through unless they've been to combat now i hear that from people i started laughing um we hired her. She was so good. And I've learned all of this that you're approving of from her and have worked it, practiced it over and over again to where I just kind of talk that way now. And you're like, oh, you're doing a good job. Like, what am I? Because <laughs> it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. I uh, work in progress. A lot of work yeah. over years with her and then doing the retreats. And when we bring her on our retreats four times a year. So I'm sitting through the therapy again, doing it each time. And my friends, you know, when they call, not even my friends, people I don't know call and they're like, uh, you know, I don't know if I want to talk to therapists. They won't get it. And I go, okay, right. So she doesn't want to see you unless you've been to college for eight years either. So it's a good thing you guys don't like each other. You know, she doesn't see anybody unless they've done also what she's done. License. And she doesn't want to see you. So she only helps other licensed clinical social workers. They're like, okay, I'll see her. And they call back after about an hour. You know, these are the Every toughest time. people I've ever met. The jawbone muscles stick out when they talk to you. And guys, I'm scared of that I've worked with. Me too. Finally call her. And then an hour later, they call me back. It's like, I don't know what's wrong with that woman. I go, what? I had me crying for 45 minutes. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I, I got an appointment with her on Tuesday. So she's great. I'm like, yeah, yeah, she's great. And it's okay to cry. And it's okay to have feelings. You know, at least you feel something now. Exactly, exactly. You know, I've been fortunate. I work with Mike Kenny in the Warriors Ascent program. And we have a day there that's called the 
ceremony for loss where they walk down and they read letters and then they burn the letters. And then we go over to a leap of faith where they climb a 40 foot pole and write what they're leaping towards. And they've got to read that. And it's like the most game changing thing I've ever been a part of. Amazing. It is so cool. Well, I appreciate you folks and everything you're doing. I applaud you. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Thank you. You know, Tom and Jen, I can be riding home from work and I'll have my head full of, okay, I'm going to go change and I'm going to go run five miles and I'm going to lift weights. And then I walk in and the magnetism of the recliner is right there. And if I sit down, it's like, game over. I wake up, it's 11. <laughs> and, and I did none of those things. And you had a thing in your book about our brain really gives us like five seconds to decide yep. how do we coach ourselves for those five seconds where the recliner is just screaming for me to come by. <laughs> yeah, that that's a great little tool. Mel Robbins uh, had talked about that. She came up with um, something called the five second rule. And really what she discovered was she was in a really funk depression. She was a bad part in her life and um, in a bad relationship. And she just felt like everyday life was getting worse for her. And she was stuck, stuck, stuck. One day she decided in the morning, instead of hitting snooze, wanted to hit snooze on life. She got up, put her shoes on, went for the walk just the first day. Every morning she started to recognize this pattern. If in the first thought is get up, go for your walk. If she noticed, if she took action right away, the activity was done, whatever it was. If she paused, she was going to go do something else. She was going to lean towards comfort. So she started doing some research and discovered that our brains will always seek comfort. They'll always seek the easier path. So you have about five seconds to trick your brain from that thought. I'm going to go work out when I get home to action. So if you didn't walk in the front door, put on your shoes, put on your workout gear and go do it, the recliner is going to win every single time. And it's not a matter of willpower. Again, this goes back to biology. If you're you know, standing in the kitchen and you're like, huh, should I go grab the pizza in the fridge and plop down and watch TV? Or am I going to go and read a book and, and do these things that I said I was going to do these self-help things? You will go towards the pizza every single time. So the trick is when you have that thought of action, I'm going to go work out. I'm going to do this self-improvement. I want to do X, Y, Z. I'm going to make that phone call that's tough. Soon as you have that thought, you have five seconds to react and act towards that or else your body's going to start seeking and making excuses for you. Well, I'll call her tomorrow. It's probably not a good time for anyways. Well, I'll, I'll work out tomorrow. All those excuses we make will come into play after five seconds. So it's it's a really powerful tool. She's taught it to executives across the world, really, too. So it it works for everyone who wants to advance in their life and kind of trick yourself into action is take it within five seconds. I literally did that yesterday with I'm looking at my calendar. I use my calendar of notes so I don't forget everything I forget. And I just put it on my calendar and, and I'll see it come up and I do it. And my counter was build the spreadsheet for 2022 retreat season. I'm like, I don't like Excel. Uh, Excel. <laughs> so I got to that time of the day yesterday. I'm like, oh man, I was so ready to just kind of chill. And so I hit the button, edit, and did it for tomorrow. And I moved it to tomorrow. And I went, all right, now I'm going to pull up and go into Home Depot or something. I don't know. And I pulled my computer over to me and I went, 
I flipped down, opened up Google Drive and opened up the Excel spreadsheet and I was done in 10 minutes. And then that night I'm looking at my calendar like, what do I have to do tomorrow? And I pulled up and I go, oh, we got this thing. I got to do a spreadsheet. And I went, I did it already. And I put it and I moved it back to the day before, you know, or today, that day actually, and as completed. And I'm like, man, it felt good to get it done when I'd been kicking it down the road, probably for a week and a half now. I was starting to to start on that Excel spreadsheet for all the names for next year. I'm like, yeah, I'll get it. I'll get it. And man, it's not fun. I don't like spreadsheets. I finally knocked it out. And I was like, I was, you know, you're excitedly happy that you're done even more so than if I sat there and didn't do it and put it off and put it off. You know, the, the joy comes from actually doing that task that your brain wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. It feels good. You know, you've been part of some of the biggest events of our nation's history. You know, when you think about the things you've done, and I'm sure in the midst of them, you didn't have the same leadership lessons that maybe you have now thinking back. If you think about those experiences of Mogadishu or Iraq, what have you learned that maybe you didn't know at the time, but time and wisdom have given you a different perspective? You know, I think I've learned that decisions are different when it's survival versus regular decision making i guess where versus it's not a survival decision right if it's survival my decisions change my survival comes first i think right that's not mine but everyone's survival comes first and i think that changes everyone's thought process so if you think you're in trouble you think you're dying you think you're having issues your thought process and your decision-making is going to be different than now. I'm not in survival mode. I can sit back and think. I can take the time to think. And I didn't do that up front. I still thought very quickly. I still was acting on muscle memory. And my muscle memory is not the civilian world muscle memory. I don't need that muscle memory out here. I can't do the muscle memory I did for 20 years out here now. So I had to create a whole new muscle. Remember, my thought process was different. Of I need to pause before I make decisions. I don't need to act right away. You know, I can actually react at times. I can actually calm down and, and, and wait. I don't have to, and, and to put it in other people's perspective, I don't have to sit with my back in the corner watching the door of the restaurant, waiting on somebody to come in that might take the place down because that used to be the world I lived in of probability. Somebody's probably going to come after me. Now I live in the world of possibility where it possibly could happen. So, you know, I can sit with my back to the door, not worry about all the exits in the restaurant, how I'm going to get out and what am I going to use as a weapon and break a bottle and stab you in the neck or something. I used to go through all that process and thinking I'm on a date with her. And she's like, you're not on a date with me. <laughs> you're protecting this place. And I'm here alone, you know, and I, and I, at our last retreat, friends of ours from the unit, we did a unit specific retreat. They're talking about, I sit in the corner, like, so the family can enjoy themselves. And the family's like, but we came to visit you and you're over there pulling security. And I'm like, see, you don't need it. You need to be with the family. So that whole thought process changed for me when it wasn't survival related. And I try to break that pattern for people um, with just awareness. They have to break it themselves over time with repetition, but just to make them aware of it, you know, oh. So they think about it when it's happening and they actually put thought into why am I behaving this way? Why am I sitting in the corner of the restaurant and I have all the avenues of escape mapped out in my head? The family's got the plan for when some guy comes in and wants to take down the restaurant, you know, and I'm, I'm telling this story, actually. And somebody said, well, it did happen in Luigi's one time. Uh, OK, Fort Bragg, 25 years ago, somebody came in and shot a bunch of people in a restaurant in Fort Fayetteville. 
25 years it happened that one time and that's what that's your argument right? you see where that person's thought process it's still survival and that changes everything it, it changes um whether you Every live, intimacy live in judgment you live in um comparison right but that was our survival right tool to to live when we walked out of the caves is that a snake or a stick you you compared from that moment and if you didn't you died you know, if you went down to the beach and laid out in the sun, you probably got pulled in by a gator, right? So you have to look for the death. You have to worry and survive. And I think we've been in a time where that's been removed from society. Um, the warriors are out doing the warrior thing with the bad, you know, the, the first responders and law enforcement, you're dealing with the horrors of society, the dregs of society. You go home after seeing horrible things that you don't think people would do to anybody else. And those other people are living in a world where they don't see that. They're not living in survival mode. So their thought process is different. And one side's trying to force the other side into seeing their perspective, right? And I don't think you can ever force that. That has to be a conversation of, of comparison and friendships, you know, and, and understanding. And, and experience. You, and experience, I think, right? I think a lot of it, he could tell me a million stories about what special operations is. And I never was combat deployed ever. So I don't know what, you know, people have asked me before. I said, no, 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 I was stateside. Um, so I only saw stateside missions, but even just that experience of spending a couple of years seeing realistic military training, you couldn't have explained that to me. You couldn't have explained to me what that tribe or that culture is like. You have to see it and experience it. And I think that's a big difference as well. It's one thing to try to share your story and people can empathize or create compassion around that, but it's a totally different thing to leave the bubble and, and expect other people to know what it's like to leave the bubble. Even if you explain it, there's just, there's no way. I mean, I always thought I, I had a pretty good perspective. I, I grew up um, working in really lower income areas and dangerous areas because my parents were really big about um, service. So I thought, oh, I've, I've seen some stuff. And it wasn't until I went down to the Dominican Haitian villages that I really saw some stuff. And you could have shown me pictures or you could have said this is what this type of poverty looks like. It wasn't anything until I smelt it and dealt with it and saw people bleeding and dying in front of me. So it, it's it's one thing to, to talk about that experience and, and leaving the bubble. And it's a totally different thing to have experienced it. And I think as a spouse, part of my role is not to judge or try to even understand combat. That's not my place. And, but it's to create empathy around his experience, not try to step in. That's it. true with experience and understanding because you just can't get it without conversation or doing it. I mean, I did, I've done ride-alongs with uh, law enforcement years, years, years ago in the unit. Like, hey, you want to do a ride-along? I'm like, yeah, I want to do a ride-along, you know? And of course I want to sit in the back of that cop car. Riding along in LA, you know, and they're, they're like, where do you want to go? I want to the dirtiest parts of town, man. And what do you want to do? I'm going to chase somebody, you know? And I ended up chasing somebody for some reason. He's like, see that guy down the street halfway? Yeah, when we get about a little closer, he's going to take off. All right, I'll roll up, you can chase it. All right. And I did that. I ended up underneath somebody's house somewhere on a well-known escape route that they had planned that I had no clue. And I got sucked right in. I'm underneath the house crawling by myself now. And I'm like, well, this job's a lot different than I really imagined. You know, I think I'll get back in the car and, and just ride along. Right. Back um, to the army. <laughs> yeah, it, comparison. You have no idea until you jump in that and, and live it. And those that spew before they do find themselves, you know, either not listened to or foolish. 
We got a lot of great uh, comments here. Jeff brought up Atomic Habits as a book, talking about the uh, the habits. Um, Mike brought up System One and System Two thinking and our limiting beliefs. Um, self care is not selfish. That's a great uh, great comment there, Mike. <laughs> well, that was awesome. It was awesome spending time with you guys, and I love the uh, the team based approach to your work. You know that it's. Uh, that it's not a person having to do it on their own, turning that into a team and a partnership. I think that's a great approach that you're uh, promoting out there that could be really helpful. It's that battle buddy system. You know, a lot of people send a vet hunting or send a vet to Disney, which is a bad idea. But, <laughs> but when they go home, that spouse is there like, I'm glad you had a good time. I was here those last 25 years too, doing all this at home alone all your affairs all your drunken nights with your boys and now you're better i'm like wow that relationship needs some help so we we, we help them both we help them understand each other the spouse understands post-traumatic stress and what that looks like in 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 the service member and what that looks like in them is secondary post-traumatic stress on the eggshell syndrome or how you've learned to behave differently because you don't want to set them off makes you a different person For sure. and you're unhappy about that so that's secondary post-traumatic stress so yeah, it takes a lot of uh, awareness and understanding on both parts to make it through. Well, I'm going to connect you up with uh, Drew, going to connect you up with Mike and other stuff Great. you guys uh, will have to talk about. And uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing your work continue. It's broader than just the military experience. You know, trauma is relative. And so people have been through things in their childhood or things uh, around um you know, their work or whatever that were traumatic to them. And so I think your principles are pretty universal, no matter what relative degree of trauma you think you're dealing with. The, the path to health is uh, pretty similar. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd rather learn from somebody that's gone through a lot of trauma and what they learned. And, uh, you know, I had a bad day one day. Let me show you how to get through it. No, I'd rather learn from those people that had most trauma because that's when you learn the most in adversity. Yeah. Well, thanks for spending the time with us. I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed uh, hearing uh, some of the things you're doing. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. I had thanks a great time as nice well. Nice to see everyone. Thanks, All everybody. All right. Well, thanks. Everybody have a great week. Thanks. thanks. Bye. Bye.